Hi, I'm Chuck Betters from Mark Inc. Ministries, and you are listening to a story that really should be filled with desperation and despair, but instead, I believe you're going to hear a tale that offers help and hope when there doesn't really seem to be any help or hope. On October the 2nd in 2006, the entire nation witnessed an incredible event that involved Marie Monville's husband, who entered an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and shot 10 young girls, killing five of them before turning the gun on himself. Now, that event shocked the nation and left many staggering under the weight of such tragedy and evil. How does a person find hope in such darkness? Now, Marie's story reveals that one light still shines in the midnight of life, as we like to call it here at Mark Inc. Ministries, and we're grateful that she will be sharing that journey with us. So welcome, Marie. So glad to have you with us here today. And my wife, Sharon, is also in the studio. So let's go ahead and get started with this amazing story of redemption. Sharon? Well, I read your book. One Light Still Shines, and what a powerful story of redemption. I have to admit I cried through some of it, and for sadness, but also for the the powerful way in which you responded to this tragedy and to such a dark place. So we are so grateful to have the opportunity to offer help and hope to hurting people through your story. And for anyone who is listening, you you may never experience anything like this, but how Marie walked this pathway is filled with ways that you can respond to broken places in your life too. So listen carefully to this powerful story of redemption. So Marie, before we get into that fateful day, uh, tell us a little bit about your life before then. Sure. Well, I grew up in very rural Lancaster County. I had Amish neighbors. My grandparents ran a business. They had trucks where they picked up milk at the farms and took it to the dairy. I rode along in the truck with my dad and my grandpa growing up. So I was very familiar with our Amish neighbors. We saw them on a regular basis, whether we were going to their farms or buying produce from the roadside stands. You know, some would say that it was a very idyllic childhood. And I didn't have a lot of neighbors. I mostly played with my siblings. I was a middle child, loved family, loved that whole sense of extended family and being able to see my grandparents on a regular basis. So I would say that I had a very country childhood, you know, as you would think when you think about Lancaster County when with the rolling kind of meadows and all of those kind of farmland experiences. We live close to the Lancaster area and it is peaceful. It just seems so it peaceful. It really is, yes. But then something tragic happened in October 2006. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes. Well, when I was in high school, I had met Charlie and we had married shortly after that. And so, you know, we had been married for quite a few years by this point. Uh, We had three young children who were seven, five and a year and a half. We had lost our first child. That was a very difficult road. For me, that was my first real experience with grief and understanding who God is in the midst of loss, something that took a long time of God just walking with me very graciously through to recover from that. But on the morning of October 2nd, 2006, it was a beautiful day. It was what we call Indian summer when it's still warm. 
You could hear the sounds of harvesting from our Amish neighbors nearby. Our windows were open. The breeze was warm flowing in. And it just was one of those pristine mornings where the world just doesn't seem to get any better. It was gorgeous. We walked with our kids to the bus stop that morning, Charlie and I, and the two of them went on to school and came home with our youngest. And uh, Charlie said, you know, I have some things to do for work. I will see you in a little while. Never thought that that would be the last time that I saw him. But he called several hours later. I was kind of expecting him home and wondering where he was. And I could tell by the sound of his voice something was wrong. It was cold and flat and lifeless. I had never heard him sound like this before. And as he started to talk to me, the things that he was saying really didn't make any sense at all. And so I was trying to listen to him, trying to piece together these things that didn't sound like the Charlie that I knew that I had been married to for almost 10 years. But he said to me, Marie, I'm not coming home. And I thought, how could this be? You know, I woke up this morning and I'm, I'm a wife and a mom and life was very normal. You know, what do you mean you're not coming home? And as he began to talk, I really was worried that he planned to harm himself. But I had no idea that his plan involved other people, much less children. So it was one of those moments where you're in the midst of life right now, but it's like you're seeing your whole entire life flash before your eyes and thinking, you know, how could this be? How could this be my life? And what does he mean by I'm not coming home? I was pleading with him saying, please don't do whatever it is that you're planning to do. There has to be another way. There's always another way. You know, we had gone to church our entire married life. He grew up in the church, as did I. And I know that there's always a way with the Lord. And so I was thinking, you know, there's nothing that we can't work through. There's nothing that God can't help us through. Don't do this. But he wasn't listening to me. And by the end of our conversation, he said, I left a note for you on the dresser. Please tell our family that I love them. And he hung up the phone. Cannot imagine that uh, kind of a conversation. And what was your emotional response? That phone was hung up and then what? And then I went to look for the letter. And as I started to read the letter, I thought, you know, I've never seen a suicide note before, but this certainly must be one. And he talked about the loss of our first daughter and how he never recovered from that. And I could tell that whatever was happening that day was motivated by that deep sense of loss that he had really hidden away in all the years since. But I still didn't know what was happening. By this point, I could hear the sounds of the police cars racing up the street and our neighborhood fire department, the sirens ringing, and thinking to myself, I don't want these things to go together. But it was kind of that knowing they do. It was that sense deep in the pit of my stomach that I couldn't deny. And I remember standing on my porch, hearing the helicopters flying overhead and seeing the police cars race up the street. And all I could say was, God help. But I knew that it wasn't about me praying a prayer that sounded important or felt like it was going to do something. It was simply that God loves us, that he's there, that all of these things that were a surprise to me, these things that I did not understand, he knew, he saw them, and that he would be with me to walk this out. I wasn't going to have to do it alone. And so there was a sense of the shock when things are happening like this that are changing your world and not changing them in a good way. I was feeling the shock of all of that, but I was also feeling 
the strength of the Lord. Strength that I would say I had never felt like that before. I was not a confident, outgoing person. I was very shy, very reserved all of my growing up years. I never wanted to be in the spotlight for anything. I would never have thought that I would have the strength and ability to walk through circumstances like these. But that day, I felt the Lord in a close way that even though I knew God and even though I'd had a relationship with him and walked through hard places prior, I had never felt strength like that until that moment. I know one of the questions that some people might have is, did you have any indication in those 10 years of marriage that his pain was running that deep? No, I did not. There were times that I would talk about how I felt about the loss of our daughter, and he wouldn't really say a lot. There would be some times where I could see that he was sad, just odd moments you know, that you wouldn't think, oh, there's this real defining sense of loss or something like that. There would be moments where I could see sadness, but never anything that lasted more than a day or two. It seemed like a parent who was grieving their child. It wasn't anything that I could have said even looking back because I certainly asked myself a lot of questions. How did I not see that? What did I miss? We were with both my parents and with his parents the weekend prior, and we all said, how did we not know? But he just was very good at tucking it away and still maintaining a normal life, going to work, providing for our family, all of those kind of things. So you thought that initially he was going to kill himself, but you right. never expected that he was going to involve no. other people. No, I when you not. heard the ambulances and the, uh, the police cars uh, going through, you say you made a connection. You, you felt like there's the two of these are related. How did you find out that they were related? The police came to my door. I kind of had some suspicions before that. My grandfather lived next door to me, and he came over and made reference of something that was happening in nickel mines. He didn't say specifically what it was, and I did not tell him that I knew that it was Charlie. I didn't want to be the one that told him that and inflicting that kind of pain upon him especially since even still at that point, no one really knew what was happening. But it didn't feel like that long from the time that I had that phone call with Charlie until the police were in my driveway. And so I knew when I saw them, I met them at the door and I said, it's Charlie, isn't it? And they said, yes. And I said, and he's dead, isn't he? And they said, yes. Then what happened? Well, they came in and they asked me a lot of questions and they told me things that no one would want to hear about someone that they loved. To think that the man I loved, the man who loved his children, could possibly be capable of doing something like this was just beyond comprehension. But it was one of those things that as much as you'd want to run away from, far, far away, and deny that that could even be remotely true, I knew there was no way I could deny this. It was all staring me right in the face. You know, and to hear those things that the police were telling me and think, we didn't even watch the news. I didn't want my kids exposed to the harsh reality of, of the brutality of this world. And now suddenly our lives are those things. How could this be possible? But I remember the sense of the Lord being with me. 
And I knew that day that I had a choice to make of what I was going to believe my life to be. And I knew that there were only two choices. I felt very strongly that the Lord was asking me to make a choice. I could either choose to believe that my life was over and that we were going down like the fastest sinking ship, or I could choose to believe that somehow in the midst of all of this, that he would come to rescue us. I knew I had nothing. I was a stay-at-home mom with three kids. But I knew I had nothing to lose by trusting the Lord. It was a place of desperation that I've never been in in my entire life until that moment. But I knew that as desperate as I felt and as much as I knew I couldn't fix any of this, I knew that I had nothing to lose by trusting God because he is faithful and he does love us. And I knew that it wasn't that... He was going to, you know, fix all of the circumstances. There are so many places in our lives that we just want God to fix quickly. But I knew that he would walk with me every day of my life in every place of walking this out. Yeah, you had to choose at that Mm -hmm. moment as to whether or not the things you have learned and were true and that God was going to indeed be faithful to you. Where were your children at the time? At the time, my youngest was sleeping And my two other children had been at school. In the period between when Charlie called me and when the police arrived, I'd called my mom. She was at work about 10 minutes away. And I said, Mom, I don't know what's going on, but something really bad is happening with Charlie. And I need you to go get my kids at school. So she went right to school and picked up picked up my daughter. My son was already on his way home on the school bus by that point, and she got him as well, and the children went to my parents' house. So after I had this conversation with the police, I knew that I had to get out of my home. I knew that the media was coming. I knew that we couldn't stay here. I really didn't know where to go except my mom and dad's house, which was just kind of down the street and around the corner. And so I tried to pack up everything that we might need for a week, thinking, I don't know what life is going to look like. I'm not sure what we're going to do, but we need to be prepared. And so, you know, I packed things up and Carson, my youngest, woke up and we went down to my parents' house and Abigail and Bryce were there and they didn't know anything at this point. They were in the backyard playing with my mom and dad. The windows were open and I could hear the sounds of their laughter coming in the window. And I thought, I just want to remember how this sounds. I just want to remember how it feels in a way that I've always taken for granted, that my kids were laughing because I thought in these next few moments, I'm going to have to tell them something that's going to break their heart and change their world. And when will they ever laugh again? And I remember the heaviness of that and thinking, God, of all the things I ever thought I'd have to talk with my kids about, I did not think I would have to say this to them. And it's not just that their father died, but it's how he chose to leave. And it's those two things that both of them are hard on their own, but put them together. It's so much for me to handle. God, how will my kids handle this? And I said, Jesus, you've got to do something about this. You have to fix this because this was not supposed to be their lives. And I felt the Lord say to me, you know what, Marie, I'm not going to fix this, but I am going to redeem it. And it took away all of my fear, all of that weight of, I'm going to have to tell them something that breaks them. All of the fear of what is life going to look like after that? How are they going to process it? All of those things that a mom thinks when she has to tell her children that their father has died. It took away the fear because I knew that 
yes, I would really like God to fix this. I'd just like this to all be gone, you know, to snap my fingers and have it not be like this. But he was bringing a promise that was more than that, a promise of redemption. We know that that is his plan. He loves us enough to redeem the broken, the hard, the lost places of our lives. And I know that he keeps his promises. So if he was telling me that he was going to redeem it, he meant it. And I knew that I could trust him. How old were you when this happened? I was 28. I'm just, you know, looking at you and you're, you're very young, but 28 is even younger. And you had incredible wisdom in those tragic moments where I think most people would go into shock and not be able to function in any way. But for you, and when I was reading your book, I thought the same thing, of how you something kicked in, in your heart and your mind, that each step was so practical. You thought in a very practical way. What, what do you attribute that ability to? I really believe that it was that foundation of faith. You know, it's like every moment that we spend with the Lord is a deposit into a bank account. And we don't know those times that come that we might need to take out a big withdrawal. And it's easy to sometimes think, well, I only spent a couple minutes with the Lord today, or I only read, you know, one or two verses, or I should have spent more time praying. But it's not the sense of telling ourselves that we've never done enough, but it's knowing that whatever we give him, he multiplies. And so he had multiplied all of these moments that my heart had connected with his and gave, that gave me a foundation of faith to stand on. I believe that that was the place where all of these other things come from. You know, when he says to ask him, to ask and to seek and to knock and to look for him, and the words that are in the Bible are true. I knew that I could choose to stand in faith on all of that. And I also wanted to be able to lead my kids in such a way that wouldn't harm them further. I wanted to be able to lead them in his life and his truth. And I didn't really understand what that would look like. I didn't think I was capable of that at all, but that was definitely a cry of my heart. God, help me to lead my children in such a way that there will be life on the other side of this for them. I was very much aware that all of my words mattered, not in a sense of, responsibility and heaviness, but knowing that there there is life in the tongue. We read about the power of our words in scripture, and I wanted to make sure that my words and my thoughts were matching up with the promises that I wanted to base my life and I wanted my children's lives to be based from. You um, were at your parents' house. Mm -hmm. How did you tell them, and what was their response? I had told, so my mom knew after I'd had the conversation and she picked up my kids, we'd had a little bit of communication on the phone and she knew. And my dad was driving tractor trailer that day. He was picking up milk at the farms and I had called him when he was working and said, dad, I need you to park your truck and come home. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what's going on until you get to my house. So before I left and went to my parents' house, my dad had come and I had told him. And I remember he was very much in a place of shock. You know, just his mouth was wide open and his eyes were wide. And I remember saying, Dad, right now there's stuff to do, though. I need you to help me. I need you to put these things in my car. 
I was very much focused on, I know that we're all going to have to recover from this. And I know this is hard, but right now we have to get out of this house because I don't know how soon the media would be there. There was one police officer that had stayed with me. And I remember saying to him, how much longer do you think I have? And he said, I'm surprised they're not here yet. So I wanted to protect my son. I didn't want to be there when the media came. I didn't want them getting pictures of us and all of that kind of thing. So my parents already knew and they were strategically in the backyard playing with the kids. There was a pastor and a counselor that had come to their house and I was kind of talking to them and saying, you know, here's what I think. I think I need to tell my kids the truth. They need to know the truth, and I have to be the one to tell them that. They know they, they need to know that they can trust me to tell them the truth, even when it's hard. But I don't think they need to know it all at once. I think today they just need a very brief overview. And in the days ahead, I'll tell them more details, probably one-on-one. You know, my daughter that was seven was even very mature at that time, and so thinking that she will need to hear things differently than her brother, who's five. But just wanting to tell them the truth, but do it bit by bit, and the counselor and pastor had agreed. I just kind of sat there, you know, just praying and waiting on the Lord for a few minutes and enjoying the sound of them laughing in the backyard with my mom and dad. And then I, I called them to come in. And Abigail sat on one side of me, Bryce on the other side, and Carson on my lap. And I said, I have to tell you something. Today, your dad made some very bad choices. Some people got hurt and some people died and he died too. And that was all I said. But that was enough in that moment. I remember that the Lord had taken the fear away from me for telling them this. But after I said it, I thought, God, how are we going to move on from here? It just felt so heavy, you know, the weight of this and not knowing what comes next. And my youngest, after what felt like, you know, agonizing moments, looked at his brother and said, do you want to play? And I thought, oh, God, you know, my my heart's cry was, when will I ever see them be normal again? And I realized that my son, who was 18 months, probably doesn't understand what I'm telling him. But you're still showing me that in some capacity, my kids will still and are normal. So that kind of opened the door for us to move on beyond that conversation. Something happened with the Amish people at that house that day? Was it that day? It was that day. It was just a couple hours later. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so there are so many moments about that day that are marked with pain, but also so many moments that are marked with the beauty of the Lord that I can clearly see how close God was that day. And it's really opened my eyes to an awareness of how close He is to us all the time. Because I know that he wasn't just closer to me that day. He didn't just love me more that day because of the circumstances we were walking through. But he loves us all every day. He's always faithful. And so I can look at that day and say it's one of the hardest days of my life, but also one that's filled with some truly beautiful moments. And our interaction with the Amish community that day was definitely one of those places. I was standing in my parents' kitchen and I was looking out the window that afternoon and kind of thinking, how can this be my life? How could I have woken up this morning? And I was just simply a wife and a mom. I lived in Lancaster County and I lived a very ordinary life. And now this afternoon, my husband has died. There's all these circumstances surrounding his death, all of the things that he chose to do that I don't understand and all the pain that he's inflicted upon the Amish community and 
so many other people, the first responders, everyone. I was thinking about all the lives that had been so negatively touched by his choices and thinking, God, how can this be? And I saw some Amish men walking down the street and I thought, they're coming to my parents' house. This was the community that I had grown up in. We were familiar with so many of these families. And I thought, what on earth could I possibly say that could mean something in light of all they face today? I don't have anything to offer them. I went to my parents and I said, you know, I see them coming down the street. I know they're coming here. What do I do? And my dad said to me, it's okay, Marie, you can stay inside and I'll go out and talk with them. And I watched from the window. I could not hear what they were saying, but I saw everything. I saw the way that they put their hands on his shoulders, the tears that flow down everyone's faces, the way they embraced before they left. And as he came inside, we all waited for him to collect himself from the emotion of that moment. And he said, Marie, they came because they were concerned about you. They were concerned about your children. They wanted you to know that they had forgiven Charlie and that they were extending grace and compassion over your family. And that shocked me. I knew that at some point, you know, we would probably have some kind of conversation or, you know, wanting to reach out in some capacity, but I never would have expected it to happen that day and certainly not for them to come to me. And I think so many times people ask me how the Amish community impacted me. And, and I would say that God used them and their love, their compassion to change the way that I think about forgiveness. Because it's really easy to think that forgiveness is this thing that someone offers to that has wronged us, that they come to us and they say, I'm sorry, I realize that I've hurt you, would you please forgive me? But forgiveness is not about that at all because the, for the Amish community, their choice to forgive Charlie, it wasn't about Charlie. My choice to forgive Charlie, it wasn't about him, but it was about allowing God to do what he wanted to do in all of our hearts to bring his healing in, in that place. And so for me, it's, it's shown me that forgiveness is not about the person that's done the wrong coming, but it's about the person that's received the wrong extending. Whether or not it ever gets to the person that did the act, it's not about that. It's about what happens between you and the Lord and what happens inside of your heart when you choose to say, okay, God, I forgive them. You know, to see the way that they reached out and came to our family, to for us to know that right away, to not bear the weight of the thought of what are they thinking and how are they feeling and did they think that I was somehow responsible for this? All of those things that I was spared from, it's incredible to me the way that even in their moments of grief, their moments of pain, there are moments of loss that they would be thinking about me and about my family. I think that's one of the things that shocked our nation and captured the attention of people across the world, probably, Absolutely. because of the, the way that they extended forgiveness. And I don't know that they even know about that moment until you wrote about it in your book. And I was thinking that when I was reading it in your book of how that had to free you in so many ways because you had so much to deal with, so much grief and your children and all of that, but to be able to say that part has been cared for and there's a relief there, what a gift. What Absolutely. an amazing gift Absolutely. to you. And to be able to continue to have a relationship with them, you know, I was 
invited to go and visit one of the girls who had been injured in the hospital in the weeks following the shooting. Another uh, Amish friends of that family reached out to me and said, you know, would you like to go? Would you like to see them? And I think for me, the conversations that I've had beyond all of this that have been the most life-giving have really come from the Amish community. You know, the, the couple that was there in the hospital with their daughter, the husband said to me, you know, when we go to bed at night, we hold each other and we can cry. And he said, and we think about you because you don't have anyone. And I thought, wow, that you would think about what this looks like for me? That was just an incredible place to see the way that they had allowed the Lord to touch their hearts, to think with compassion on someone that you would think maybe shouldn't have had any compassion from their community. But it's caused me to want to live like Christ and to want to see those places where my eyes can see the pain in other people's life, the brokenness that they've experienced and be able to say, I see this, but I know that that's not the end. That's, that's not it because God has something for you beyond all of this. A lot of times people will ask me, you know, why did you write a book or why do you share your story? And it's simply to extend the hope that God has extended to me because I know that he loves me. He doesn't love me any more than he loves you. He loves us all the same. And if he's capable of bringing redemption in my life through these circumstances, what does he have for everyone else? You know, we all experience pain and brokenness. And while our circumstances vary, the way we feel about it in our hearts is often so the same. And if he can do this for me, it encourages me to share because I want other people to believe that he has something for them too. And uh, to those of you who are listening, you can't see us. But even now, 11 years later, uh, Marie has tears, and uh, I'm trying not to have tears as I'm thinking about those incredible moments mm-hmm. where uh, broken people were so intentional about reaching out to you and um, modeling the forgiveness of Christ. Did you know any of the victims or their families? We knew the families. I didn't know any of the girls specifically, but yes, we knew the families. We were very well acquainted with some of them. I don't know that Charlie would have known that that day. I mean, I'm sure that he knew. I know that he would have had an awareness that these were families, even that he knew from the route that he drove when he picked up milk at the farm and took it to the dairy. What was your first contact with one of the families that you knew? Did you you have any personal contacts with them after their children were, were shot? Yes. So the day of the funeral, we the service was at uh, the church we attended, uh, but the church didn't have a cemetery. So the cemetery where I grew up, right in Georgetown, was where Charlie was going to be buried. And I remember driving from the church where the ceremony was to the cemetery at the other church, and I was thinking, God, please don't let there be any media there. That whole week, it had been almost a week later, that whole week my goal had been to keep especially my children's faces out of the media. And the police had said to me that there wouldn't be anyone at at the church that day, but I was still scared. And I remember pulling in at the church and seeing that, no, there weren't any cameras on the church property, but directly across the street, there was a whole lineup 
of people with cameras. And not just cameras like we all use every day, but with lenses that looked like telescopes. And I thought, God, what am I going to do to protect my kids, protect my family from this moment of such private and intense grief? And as we pulled into the parking lot at the church, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something. And it it was a group of Amish people walking single file, one right after the other. And they came and they stood between us and the, the street so that all the reporters were able to see were the backs of the Amish people. And then after the burial time was over, they all lined up one by one and we all lined up and we greeted each other. And we, none of us knew that that was going to happen. And they certainly didn't come that day thinking, well, we're going to put ourselves in that place for Marie. Nobody knew about this, but it was just what they allowed God to do in that moment. And so for me, you know, it was those two big things that they chose to stand between us and the reporters. I mean, if you know anything about the Amish, you know that they don't want their picture taken. They believe that that directly goes against the Ten Commandments. And so they chose to put themselves in that place that day, which was incredible. But then beyond that, they chose to meet us face to face. And my parents knew the families better than I did. And as we lined up, my mom was starting to tell me who was coming. And the first mom that I met, the first person I met, was one of the moms of one of the girls. And I remember, you know, all those thoughts that just rushed through your head so quickly. And I remember thinking, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. But I don't think any, any of us spoke a word. But it was what you saw looking into each other's eyes and the embrace of a hug from someone who, you know, by the world standard would have been on the opposite side of this from you. But yet they allowed themselves to come to a place that wasn't about sides at all, but was simply about being compassion to one another. And there's something, you know, that your eyes can convey when you make eye contact with someone that's beyond a thousand words that your mouth could ever say. Uh, and so that was definitely one of the most profound places we walked that week, that exchange in the cemetery that day. Marie, I mean, just hearing you talk and reading your book, um, I, I know that I'm on holy ground. I mean, I know that God has done something remarkable and gives such hope to others. But I bet that uh, there, and I have to admit, I kind of thought it too, uh, in my own heart is, the strength in you is so remarkable. So speak to that person who would say, wow, what a story, but I would never, ever be able to do what she did. I would never have the strength to be able to survive, uh, to make that choice to trust God. Speak to that person. Well, if I was reading a book like this the day before it all happened, I would have said, I could never do anything like that. I could never walk through those kind of circumstances. I don't know how you get up in the morning and deal with that every day for the rest of your life. I would have said all of those things about me. I never would have thought that I could receive such strength from the Lord and be able to walk that out. But that is the amazing thing about God's grace. We can't anticipate what his grace looks like until we're in the moment of that place. And then we can either choose to walk it out in faith and believe him in a way that maybe we've never believed before, or we can stand in a place of fear and not do it. 
I knew that the strength I felt wasn't me. It was totally God. God was rewriting everything I thought about myself. I thought I was just this shy girl from Lancaster County, never wanting to be in the spotlight. I didn't think I had anything to say that anybody needed to listen to. He was giving me confidence in myself that I had never had before. And you would not think these are circumstances you'd walk out of confidently. But it was because I was starting to realize that the only thing that mattered was what God thought about me. I had spent all of my years growing up being so concerned about what people thought about me, how I dressed, what I said, you know, wanting to exceed all of my teachers' expectations in school. And suddenly the world was saying things about me that I could not control. And I knew that it didn't matter. All that mattered was what God said. So I leaned into that. I spent a lot of time remembering and making myself remember the verses that I had memorized as a child, as a young adult. They all just came back to me. And it was a foundation of faith and who God is as he breathed his strength on me that enabled me to walk that out. It's not something I would have ever thought that I could do, but it's because it wasn't me. You know, in the Bible, it says that in our weakness, he is strong. So I knew that I didn't have to be this strong person. I didn't have to feel capable. I just had to allow God to be who he is. And I think that's the place for me that I've wanted to continue to walk out my life in all the days since. Because there's never been another day that's been that hard, but they're not all easy. (laughs) And it doesn't matter who you are and what you go through. There are days that are hard and there are days that are easy and there are all kinds of days in between. But God is the same in all of those places and he offers us his strength in all of those moments. He is the giver of good things. And one of those places that I've received his goodness is in strength to do what I would have thought was impossible. But that's because with him, all things are possible. I'm not looking at a victim here, am I? No, no. I remember that that very first day I knew that I could choose. And I decided that I was not going to be a victim. My children were not going to be victims, but we were going to be victorious because of who God is. There are expressions you're using that are so familiar to us Mm -hmm. because we've used the same expressions. Uh, For example, when the scriptures are like dry cereal, you just, you do your duty, so to speak, you have your disciplines, you read the scriptures for a couple minutes a day and, and yet nothing happens. There are other times when you read the scriptures and they're like meat and potatoes. It just tastes so good. And you know that they're making an impact on your life. It's those times when you're in that dry cereal stage where it's not very tasty, it doesn't do anything for you, that later they're like little kegs of dynamite yes. that blow up at the appropriate time, especially Absolutely. when you learn to lean into the pain and not to make yourself the victim mm-hmm. of th- those dark times. Speak to this idea of your identity in Christ and specifically what role scripture plays in helping you to get up each morning with this um, mindset, I am not going to be the world's victim today. I'm going to be victorious. And what role does scripture play in that for you? It plays a huge role for me. And I think if there's one thing that I've come back to so many times, it's the story about the loaves and the fish. You know, Jesus and the disciples, they were with a multitude of people and it was 
getting late, the people needed something to eat. And so, you know, it wasn't like there was a subway down the street. There, there was nothing to give them. And so Jesus was saying to the disciples, find some food for them. And they said, well, there's nothing. And this little boy came to them with his lunch, some loaves and some fish. And Jesus blessed it and he broke it and he passed it out. And in the end, they collected more leftovers than they ever had when they started. And I think life's like that. There are so many days when I wake up and I look at what's what I know is going to happen, plus all those things that I don't know. And I think, God, there's no way I can do all this. There's no way that I have enough strength, enough energy, enough time, enough patience, enough wisdom. You know, I can say all of those things to myself that I don't think I have. But that's not the truth. That's only the truth if that's what I want to make it to be. But the truth of who God is supersedes all of that if I'll allow it to. The truth is, it doesn't matter what I have. If if I offer it up to him, he will bless it and he will break it. And at the end of the day, I'll have more left over than I ever started with. I know that's true because I've lived it out. I've seen the way that he's taken the very few crumbs that I might think I have in the morning and that he's helped me to, by the end of the day, feel like I have way more now than I ever started with. It's about perspective, and it's about choosing to believe that the word that God says is true. Choosing to believe that the promises that he makes in scripture aren't just fluff, but they're truth that we can stand on. But we have to make the choice to stand on it. We can't just, you know, hear them on Sunday and forget about them until the next Sunday. It's our choice to do something with them, to be diligent about it, even when we don't feel like it, when we feel like having a pity party, when we wake up and it's rainy, you know, and and the sun's not shining and we kind of feel like that inside, oh, there's nothing good about this day. You can have those conversations in the morning, but you can say, yes, but I know that God's going to sustain me. I know that he causes all things to work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's about memorizing even just one scripture that you can stand upon when the going is tough because his words are alive. And so if if I'll let him, he will breathe his life into my dry, dead places, but I have to make the choice for that. Do I always make the choice for that? No. (laughs) You know, are there days that I could have had a much better day had I kept that perspective a little stronger in my mind? Absolutely. You know, but I think it is our choice. And if we're faithful to make the choice, the Lord will meet us where we're at and help us through it. I know in the book of Acts, there is an incredible story of the, uh, I believe it's Paul and Silas, who were beaten to within an inch of their lives and they were taken and put into the stocks. And the Bible makes it clear it was the inner stocks, which means it was the back part of the, the jail cell. That was the most torturous part. Then, then this statement is just comes out of nowhere in Scripture that Paul and Silas are sitting, sitting there, and they're singing at midnight. They're mm-hmm. singing at midnight. And so the question becomes, will you sing at midnight? Mm-hmm. Now, people who are listening to this resource are more than likely hurting. Uh, they're more than likely uh, in some form of despair, going through some form of darkness, and they want hope. Mm-hmm. I want you to speak to the person who's sitting across from you at a desk somewhere, who just wants to say, I've had it. I can't go any further. It's too dark. I can't sing at midnight. Uh, I, I I can't get up tomorrow morning because this pain is too great. What would you say to them? 
I would say that it's not over. If you choose to believe that God has not finished with you yet, which he hasn't, there is light and he will bring life. And you're right. It is that choosing to sing at midnight, even when you don't feel like it. You know, talking about Paul and Silas, I can't imagine that they were sitting in the jail cell singing. You know what? Saying, I can't wait to start singing. Let's start singing. I imagine that it was something that they knew to be true and they chose to do it. They chose that because they knew the truth of it, that it's not about our feelings. It's about God and him meeting us, even when we can't see the light. There were a lot of days that if if I would have just been making decisions based on what my eyes could see, I wouldn't have chosen what I chose. But I know that God has more for me and he has more for you. Whatever place you're in, that's not the end of the road. And as he made a promise to me of redemption, he makes that same one to you. And it's choosing to say, God, even though I can't see, it's too dark, it's too hard, whatever it is, even though I can't see, I'll choose to believe that you can. I'll choose to believe that you have something more than this because you love me. And it's coming back to this place where you have to choose to believe that he loves you. Even if all you know right now is pain and all you know right now is brokenness, he is a good father. And maybe you're thinking, I don't get how he's a good father because there's nothing good happening in my life right now. He is. And it's simply making that statement of faith to say, God, I get it. I can't explain this. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't look like how I should be choosing. But right now I'm going to choose to walk a different way than what I feel because my feelings are not truth. Your truth, your love is truth. And I'm going to believe that there's more than this. On your website, Marie, you say that nothing is beyond redemption. Mm -hmm. And so we've heard about what happened a while ago in your life. So tell us, let's jump forward to where you are today and tell us how we've already seen some of the ways God is redeeming the pain clearly through uh, your story. But what are some of the other ways that God has redeemed the pain of your life? Well, you know, there are all those kind of circumstantial ways, if you will. When I, in the days after this, I remember saying to the Lord, okay, God, you know how much I loved being married. You know how much I loved that. God, you know how much my kids needed a dad. And I remember in that moment saying, but God, if there isn't a man on the face of this earth that could handle what my life looks like now, I totally understand. So Jesus, if it's just you and me from now till forever, I'm fine with that. But if there is someone, just bring me one guy because I'm not dating. (laughs) I didn't have an expectation that God would do that quickly. I really didn't know what that would look like. I just made that statement one morning in my devotions. And he has so exceeded what I ever would have thought when I prayed that prayer. I met a wonderful man named Dan, and we've been married for 10 years. When we first got married, uh, you know, we had five children ranging in age from two to about 16. (laughs) So we were doing potty training and driver training and everything in between. And I remember thinking, well, I knew I would experience all of these things. I just didn't think I'd be doing them all at once. Uh, But I thought, God, how you have blessed me. I wouldn't have ever thought 
that my story would look like this again. My kids loved Dan. We would do these family dates, and it wasn't until after too many of them that my son said to me, Mom, can you ask Dan to marry you? And I said, no, girls don't ask boys to marry them, Uh, you know, because everything is so black and white to a five-year-old boy. But to see the way that God brought our family together and the way that you know, new siblings, everybody got along, not all the time. I mean, of course, there were fights and things like that, but just normal kid things. But to see the way that God blended our family, that to me spoke of the redemption of the Lord, that he could take these two families that had both experienced broken places. You know, when I looked at Dan and I thought about the brokenness that he had experienced in his own life, I thought, God, I am so thankful that he allowed you to draw his heart to you that he allowed you to write the story you've written in his brokenness because this is what you meant. It's not that God means for bad things to happen, but it just that means that his redemption can take the, all that brokenness and put it together in such a way that you would never know. You know, someone meeting our family out for the first time, if, if they didn't know the circumstances that happened, they wouldn't have known. And so as, you know, as the days went by, people would ask us, of course, well, are you going to have more children? And we had five kids and I thought, well, I really like sleeping through the night. But there was this part of me that had always been drawn to adoption. And I began to say to Dan, well, I think that God is gonna call us to adopt. You know, I remember a prayer on my heart that fall after all of this had happened with Charlie and I said, God, every child needs a mom and a dad. My kids need a dad more now than ever before. Kind of that realization that, you know, for me to get married, it wasn't simply about me finding someone that I could love. It was about someone that would be a father to my children. And in that moment, I think the Lord did something beyond what I ever knew about how I felt drawn to adoption, but it was this understanding of what it looks like for a child that's lost a parent. But then to think about all the children around the world who have lost both parents for whatever reason. And so I began to talk to Dan about adoption, but for a while he'd he'd say the same thing. You know, Marie, we have five kids. <laughs> On any given day, that's the opportunity for one or five, you know, situations that are difficult. <laughs> and and I didn't want adoption to be this thing that Dan just said yes to because I wouldn't stop asking. So I just began to pray about it and allow the Lord his own space to work on Dan. And so a couple of years later, he came to me and said, you know, the Lord is speaking to my heart about adoption. And, and so it took some time, but we were able to adopt our son from South Africa. He's about a year younger than our youngest. And it's just been one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. And I think about all that we have gone through and that somehow God took our family in Lancaster County and this little boy who'd been praying for a family in South Africa and that in the hand of the Lord, we all met and that the timing was right. All those times that I felt like were a delay, all those times that I was praying and waiting for Dan, that somehow God brought it all together at the exact right moment. I think that if I ever need the reminder that God is who he says he is, it's just to look at my kids, especially our son that's adopted, and to think, had we not trusted God on this, we would have missed out on on all of this. He has a smile that just lights up our lives, and we laugh so hard all the time. And all of these moments that we get to experience because we're parents, 
I think that my heart has come to learn more about God and his love as a father through me being a mom. And it stuns me when I look back and think, okay, it's been almost 11 years since all of this had happened with Charlie. If you would have asked me 11 years ago, Marie, what do you think your life is going to look like in 10 or 11 years? I wouldn't have ever dreamt that it could be as beautiful as it is now. And that when God said to me that day, I'm not going to fix this, but I'm going to redeem it, that he wouldn't just mean I'm going to heal those broken places in your hearts, which he does and has continued to do, but that I'm going to take circumstances that you wouldn't think could be changed and I'm going to change them. And you know, it's not to say that all the circumstances in my life have changed. There are places that we walk and losses that we face that aren't going to be fixed and aren't going to be filled by some other person. It's not about that, but it's allowing God to bring his redemption even when it looks different. And I'm so thankful for what God has done and what he continues to do in my life. You know, in the book of uh, Joel, chapter 2, when we lost our son Mark uh, on July 6, 1993, and I am in the hospital holding him, and he's dead. Uh, The Lord gave me a verse of scripture sometime later that I've held on to all these years. And uh, the people of God were in a devastating situation, and uh, mainly because of their own sin. And God gives this promise through the prophet Joel. He says, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, that great and mighty locust. And then this is the part that really gets to me that great and mighty locust that I have sent, which means that even in those ugly circumstances, all of it's filtered through the hands of a sovereign God Mm -hmm. whom we can trust. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I held Mark in the hospital, uh, I said to the Lord, you have to show me that everything I have ever taught and believed and preached is true because right now this hurts so bad. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at you and I'm, I'm seeing... You folks who are listening to this cannot see her face, but I want to tell you, I'm not looking at a victim. I'm looking at somebody who has really struggled through some of the hard decisions that had to be made in her life and in her children's lives uh, to bring her to the point where right now she sits uh, as a victor and not as a victim. And, and I just I want to thank you for just being willing to share that story with us. I think it's an incredible story. Uh, your website is mariemonville.com. Is that correct? That's correct. It's Marie and then the word Monville, M-O-N-V-I-L-L-E dot com. And uh, you wrote a book called One Light Still Shines. Why did you entitle it that? Why, why did you choose that title? It's an interesting title. Yes. One Light Still Shines. <laughs> You know, I wanted something that was right off the bat going to speak to the truth of who God is. That it wasn't about the circumstance, it wasn't about the event that day, but it was about the truth of the Lord. Because for me, that's what I wanted this journey for myself, for the reader to be about the experience of who God is right from those very moments, those hard places in our lives. So to me, the title, One Light Still Shines, It's true in every place we walk, in all the darkness we go through, it doesn't matter what the experience is, God's love, His light will always shine. As I listen to you, as as we've gone through this interview, uh, I am amazed at God's grace in your life 
And I know that the listeners who are, who are picking up this resource and listening to it right now are probably in some sort of dark place. And when you say one light still shines, that means when all other lights go out, uh, one light still shines. Yours is a story of redemption. And that redemption is rooted in a redeemer. And that redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've missed that message as you're listening to this, then you've missed the whole message uh, of what Marie is trying to share with you, that Christ is the difference, that Christ is the light that continues to shine even when all the other lights in your life go out. And we want you to know that Christ. Marking Ministries exists for that purpose, to offer you help and hope, especially if you're hurting. And that offer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do not know him, I want to encourage you to allow us to show you how you can come to know him. You can visit us at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, or call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. We are here to help you. We are here to offer you that Redeemer, to give you his peace, to share with you his peace and his, and his joy that can become yours even when all the lights in your life go out. My name is Chuck Betters. I am the co-founder of Mark Inc. Ministries. And Mark Inc. Ministries stands for Making Abundant Riches Known in the Name of Christ. And you've been listening to one of our resources. You can visit us at markinc.org for a listing of all of our resources and all of the offers of help and hope that we give. And I trust that God will use this resource in your life to bless you richly and to give you the victory that only He can offer. May he receive all the glory through your life, even through those dark places. May God richly bless you.